Welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. Before we get into Rolling Stones Part 2, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, let's get started. The Rolling Stones Part 2. In the early days of the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones and Keith Richards were very close. It's kind of hard to believe now, but Keith really idolized Brian. Not only did Brian have an unparalleled knowledge of the blues, but he was also pretty far ahead of Keith on the guitar. So Brian became Keith's musical mentor. But Brian also had such an intensity to him. He was only a year older, but he seemed like he was worlds ahead of the band. And that's because Brian was kind of living the life of an outlaw. He had left school and he didn't have a family anymore. He was this absent father and he didn't take crap from anybody. Someone like Keith, who was rebellious but still living with his parents and attending art school, Brian seemed like the real deal. But it wasn't really cool for Brian at the time. Things had gotten desperate. He was a father at least three times over, and by the time the band started, he had no money. I mean, he had to steal to eat. After Brian left his girlfriend, Pat Andrews, and son behind in Chetlinham to make it big in London, she tracked him down and moved to London and insisted that Brian move in with her and help her raise their son. Brian was cornered. He couldn't run away anymore. Music simply had to work out for him, or else he couldn't support his young family. Things were so precarious for Brian, it's easy to imagine a scenario where he just gave up and worked a normal job, as a lot of young musicians did back then, but Brian was energized. He finally had a band. In the summer of 1962, Brian, Pat, the baby, Mick, and Keith all moved into an apartment together. Number 102 Edith Grove in Chelsea, London, where the rent was just £16 a month. Now, the rent was paid mainly by Mick, who had a student grant, and the others would just contribute what they could. Now, the flat at Edith Grove was notoriously disgusting. Not exactly a luxurious place to begin with. The Stones trashed it. Never did they do a single dish or clean the apartment. They'd put their cigarette butts out on the carpet and throw trash on the ground. Keith said, quote, We made it almost our professional business to keep it so disgusting, since we had little means to make it otherwise, unquote. Not only this, but the guys had no money, not even enough to put a shilling in the heater to heat the house in the winter. The nights were freezing, and Mick, Keith, and Brian would just have to sleep in the same bed to keep warm. Pretty quickly, Pat and the baby moved out, deciding that Edith Grove simply wasn't compatible with their lives. Brian didn't really seem to care that Pat moved out. I mean, even though he had a baby with her, he wouldn't commit to her, and he would cheat on her pretty regularly. The two would still see each other off and on, but as the Rolling Stones got started and more secure as a band, Brian and Pat's relationship started to wither away. At Edith Grove, the guys had several roommates for different periods of time. One of them was their friends James Felge, who was challenging Mick, Keith, and Brian on who could be the grossest housemate. Felge would always be doing something outrageous and disgusting, you know, peeing down the stairs, spitting on the walls, pulling some prank. The guys loved him, but he only lasted at Edith Grove for a few weeks before they kicked him out. Their other roommate was Dick Hatchell, an old hometown friend of Brian's. Brian recruited Dick to come live with them at Edith Grove because Dick had a steady income so he could contribute to rent. Now, you'd think Brian would have been gracious to his old friend, but that vicious streak in Brian was in full force with Dick. I mean, he was absolutely relentless to his old friend, usually trying to make Mick and Keith laugh at his expense. Keith remembers how Brian treated Dick Hatchell, saying, quote, Brian was incredible. Within two weeks, Brian took him for every penny and he conned Dick into buying him his new Harmony electric guitar, having his amp fixed, and getting him a whole new set of harmonicas. Dick would do anything Brian said. It was freezing in the worst winter. Brian would say, 
give me your overcoat. And then gave Brian his overcoat. Give Keith the sweater. So I put the sweater on. Brian would invite Dick to lunch, and the three of us would go to what we considered a really good restaurant, and we would have a hot meal, which nobody could afford, and then we'd just walk out and leave Dick to pay the bill. Brian and I were so crazy at the time, unquote. Brian, Mick, and Keith during this period were going out of their way to be mean, gross, and improper, as a means of rebelling. They didn't care that they were poor or that they had to steal food. This type of behavior became an identity to them. It wasn't something that necessarily came naturally to them. I mean, Brian and Mick came from upper-class families. Uh, All of them were taught manners, but they felt like they didn't fit into that world, and they didn't even want to try. In fact, they made a point to act as differently uh, from normal people as possible. They didn't want to be polite or have normal jobs. They openly mocked that idea. They'd call normal working people Ernie's and even came up with a bit called nankering, which was a silly face and a voice they'd use when they were imitating normal people. The misbehavior at Edith Grove proved particularly good for Brian and Keith's friendship. The two of them got really close during this time. Mick was still a student at the London School of Economics, and he'd sometimes crash at Edith Grove and sometimes crash at home. Keith, though, decided that he didn't want to go back to art school, and he was going to pursue music instead. And that made him the second member of the Rolling Stones to risk it all for a dream in music. The difference was Brian was really estranged from his family, where Keith still had his mom to stop by and do his laundry or bring him some food every now and then, but they were both, for the time being, officially trying to be bluesmen. This really bonded them. While Mick, Bill, Stu, and Charlie were in school or working all day, Brian and Keith would be hanging out, playing for hours, trying to sound exactly like the guitars on Jimmy Reed and Robert Johnson records. Most importantly, they were learning how to play together. And at Edith Grove, This is where the Stones really developed the key to their sound, guitar weaving. Guitar weaving is a way that two guitar players play together, and they blur the lines of who's playing lead and who's playing rhythm. It's only two guitars, but it makes for a rich sound that the band would rely on. Keith later remembered, quote, The early days of the magic art of guitar weaving were started then. You realize what you can do playing guitar with another guy, and what the two of you can do is to the power of ten, and then you add other people, unquote. Mick Jagger wasn't too thrilled that his best friend Keith was all of a sudden soul brothers with Brian. Though Mick, Brian, and Keith were the best of friends at the time, there was always a bit of competition between Mick and Brian. Not only were they the two front men of the band, but Mick and Brian didn't really trust each other. Brian hated that Mick was still going to school and not ruling out the possibility of a real career if the Stones didn't work out. To Brian, this was a betrayal, and he would sometimes talk to other singers and ask them their thoughts on joining the band, sort of as a threat to Mick. Now, Mick obviously thought that Brian could be sneaky and dishonest, but he was also pretty possessive of Keith, and he felt threatened by the relationship between the two guitarists. One day, in an attempt to knock Brian down a few pegs, Mick crossed a line. Pat Andrews was staying at Edith Grove, and Mick apparently made a move on her. Now, nobody knows exactly what happened between them that day, but Mick told Brian and the band that he had successfully seduced Brian's longtime girlfriend and mother of his child. Pat always denied it, but Brian didn't believe her. He actually blamed her instead of his friend Mick for the whole situation. And Pat felt like Brian never really treated her the same after the incident. It was a macho scene back then, and and Brian felt like he had been had. So to reassert himself as the leader of the Stones, Brian slept with Keith's young girlfriend, which obviously really devastated Keith and he felt betrayed by Brian, much to Mick's pleasure. 
Now, the whole event caused a minor rift in the band, and it was evidence of a much larger tension that was brewing within the band, a tension that we'll talk a lot more about on this podcast. At the time, though, it was just drama, a distraction. Girls were secondary to the music. The Stones spent pretty much all of their time thinking about the blues, listening, and trying to live the lives of bluesmen. They were pretty much always practicing, and this obsession with practice and getting better was really coming from Brian. Dick Hatchell remembers Brian's work ethic, quote, Where Brian scored was he just worked so damn hard. He listened to a record, practice and practice until he got to what he considered somewhere near that sound. In the early days in Edith Grove, they'd come back from a gig and Brian would say to Keith, That was a load of crap. We've got to go over it and over it until we get better, unquote. And they quickly did get better. Pretty soon, Brian and Keith were like two sides of the same coin musically. They didn't know it at the time, but the guitar-weaving style that they were perfecting would not only be key to their sound in the coming years, but it would become one of the most influential sounds in pop music history. core of the band really started to come together during those Edith Grove rehearsals, but until Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts joined the band, the Rolling Stones lineup was uncertain, and they had a hard time getting consistent work. They only played a handful of gigs in the first few months of 1963, and some of them were to full houses, but a lot of them were to empty dance halls with a few people sitting at the bar. Brian Jones, who was not only acting as the group's musical manager, but their de facto business manager as well, would take the little money they got, divide it up, and give the most money to himself, claiming that he needed to pay for the apartment, equipment, managerial duties, and so on. Bill Wyman later said, quote, We'll never know where some of the money went. He conned us and we all knew it. But he was such an energetic leader that nobody cared much about Brian's extra few pounds. We were much more concerned with getting the music right than arguing about income, unquote. Brian was pretty inexhaustible when it came to going to clubs, talking to managers, writing letters to newspapers, and trying to as hard as he could to get the word out about the Rolling Stones. To him, a successful career in music was life or death. He had something to prove, and he desperately wanted to show his parents that he was in charge of a successful band. Keith remembers, quote, Brian was a lot more conscious of his background and concerned about what his family thought than the rest of us were, unquote. Even though Brian was, in a lot of ways, the engine of the band during these days, it's easy to overstate Brian Jones's role in the early days of the Stones. When we do this, we often overlook the role of Ian Stewart. If Brian was the creative boss, Stu was in charge of the organization. Stu actually had connections on the club scene from years of playing, and his life wasn't nearly as precarious as Brian, uh, so Stu would actually keep track of the gigs, the band's schedule, he'd tell everyone what time to get there, what to wear, I mean, he even bought a van with what little money he had so the band could travel for gigs. Hard to understate how important having a van was for travel. I mean, they simply couldn't go outside of London unless they had a way of getting there. Stu was also adamant about recruiting Charlie Watts. He thought it was simply essential. Without Stu's sense of responsibility and his attention to detail and logistics, it's highly likely that the Stones would have just crumbled. Thanks to this, the Stones kept at it. In the late winter of 1963, the gigs started happening more frequently. 
They played the Marquee, the Ealing Jazz Club, the Flamingo, the Ricky Tick. And though they were playing more and more and getting better, the reaction was mixed. You see, at the time, the Stones were really unusual. The music scene was still dominated by modern jazz players, people wearing suits and playing trumpets. Then here comes these long-haired, scruffy teenagers playing rhythm and blues music, at least trying to play it, and they really had a hard time because jazz promoters didn't want to book them. Even though they'd sometimes get really enthusiastic crowds, they'd be relegated so not to undermine the jazz bands. Despite the jazz scene's best efforts, though, there was a tremendous appetite for the Stones' brand of music because people were getting fed up with jazz. The Stones were fresh, and they had an appeal, an image, a vibe that was bigger than the music that they were playing. Mick Jagger's performing style was so provocative, the audience just couldn't look away. He looked strange, he had huge lips, and he was extremely skinny. When he danced, his movements were very feminine, and he sang with this sort of southern slur. At the time, everything about Mick Jagger was utterly scandalous. Jagger has always had this natural ability, no matter how big the crowd, to make every individual member of the audience feel that he's singing to them, making them feel like they're connected to his performance. Brian Jones was the only other natural performer at the time, with his blonde hair that covered his eyes, his smirk, his bottleneck slide guitar. He had a look and sound that the audience couldn't help but notice. He was the only other stone other than Jagger to dance on stage and interact with the crowd. Jagger and Jones started off as the frontmen, supported by the groove of Stu, Keith, Charlie, and Bill, who were all pretty tame, kind of a juxtaposition to the wildness of Mick Jagger. Now, there was an obvious appetite for the Stones, and if the jazz promoters weren't going to take advantage, other promoters would. Brian befriended an experimental filmmaker named Giorgio Gomelski, who ran a club in Richmond called The Crawdaddy. Giorgio was worldly, and he spent a lot of time in the U.S., so he had an affinity for American music, and he really liked Brian, who convinced him to drop his unreliable house band and give the job to the Rolling Stones. Giorgio agreed and gave each member of the band one pound per week, pretty much nothing, but the money was secondary to the playing experience they would get as being the house band at a club. Not only this, Giorgio had a huge level of interest in their success. If the Stones succeeded, that meant the Crawdaddy Club did too. So Giorgio started putting out ads in the papers, like Melody Maker, plugging the, quote, craziest new R&B sound of the unparalleled Rolling Stones, unquote. Shows at the Crawdaddy started to grow, and soon there'd be 60, 80, 100 people at the show. As the Stones got better, they started to get regular fans who'd follow them from club to club to see them play. They also started to have girls screaming in the front row. Finally, things seemed to be going right for the Stones. A residency, fans, girls, they could officially see their dreams start to come true. The Stones started to pat themselves on the back. They really thought they were unique. They genuinely believed that they were the only people in England with their sound, with their idea. Until one day, they heard something on the radio that terrified them. The Beatles. A few months before they secured their residency, the guys were listening to the radio at Edith Grove when they heard something totally shocking on the radio. The Beatles love me do. They panicked. Someone had beaten them to it, a guitar-driven band singing American-style music with bluesy harmonica on it. Keith said that hearing Love Me Do caused him physical pain. Mick remembered hearing the Beatles for the first time saying, quote, We thought we were totally unique animals. 
Then we heard that there was a group from Liverpool. They had long hair, scruffy clothes, but they also had a record contract and a record in the charts with a bluesy harmonica on it called Love Me Do. When I heard the combination of all these things, I was almost sick, unquote. Brian thought briefly that the band was finished and that the Stones were too late. But they kept pressing on. They didn't have a record contract and they definitely didn't have records in the charts, but they were starting to get somewhere on the music scene. So much so that just a few months after hearing Love Me Do, the Stones went from not even having a consistent drummer to having a residency as well as their names and pictures on the pages of Melody Maker every week. By the time the Beatles released Please Please Me in February of 1963, the Stones were the up-and-comers on the London music scene, and their first residency at the Crawdaddy was crucial to their development. Unbeknownst to them, Giorgio was in contact with the Fab Four, trying to get them to do a movie that he was trying to produce. One day, after visiting the Beatles at a television rehearsal, Giorgio told them about the best R&B band in London that they just had to see. The Beatles were intrigued, so they agreed to go with Giorgio to the Crawdaddy to see the Rolling Stones. The Stones were playing to a crowded and rowdy room that night, but they noticed the Beatles pretty much immediately. Bill Wyman remembers it, quote, Soon after we began our first set, we were staggered to see the four Beatles standing and watching us. They were dressed identically with long leather overcoats. I became very nervous and said to myself, Shit, it's the Beatles, unquote. The Stones tensed up for a minute, but they were on their home turf and the crowd was absolutely electric that night. And the Beatles were impressed with how well they played. They stayed the whole show, and after the gig, Mick invited John, Paul, George, and Ringo back to Edith Grove for a few drinks. Now, the Beatles were revolted by the apartment, but having paid their dues living behind the screen of a porn theater in Hamburg, they were no strangers to the seedy existence of struggling artists. The two bands got drunk and talked and played music until 4 a.m. They had similar tastes in music. They loved Chuck Berry, for example. But the Beatles weren't as bluesy as the Stones. The Beatles liked some blues, like B.B. King, Bo Diddley, more melodic, rocky stuff. But the Stones were horrified when John Lennon gave a few seconds listen to their idol, Jimmy Reed, before saying it was, quote, crap, unquote. Regardless, a friendship between the two bands had started, and the Beatles invited the Stones to their show at the Royal Albert Hall that week, which was quite the contrast from the Crawdaddy Club in Richmond. John Lennon told them to pretend to be roadies so they could get in for free, and that's exactly what Mick, Keith, and Brian did. When they successfully entered the Royal Albert Hall, they were mobbed by girls who thought that the shaggy, long-haired guys were Beatles. For the first time, the Stones were exposed to a real stardom. They were hooked. They now knew what they needed to do. They had to have a record in the charts. By the time the Stones met the Beatles, they were playing better than they ever had and attracting more and more fans to their shows. On the outside, things looked fantastic, but within the band, morale suddenly dropped to a low point. Professionally, the band felt kind of stuck. They didn't feel like they were close to getting a recording contract. They just hung out with the Beatles, who were worlds ahead of them. They had more money, more fame, and most of all, they were writing and recording their own music to great success. The Stones recorded a demo with their friend and future music legend, Glyn Johns, who was working as an engineer in a local studio, but record labels didn't bite, and as a result, it didn't go anywhere. Everything else they were doing in early 1963 didn't seem to get them any closer to recording artists, and they started to lose hope in their future as R&B artists. 
All of that was about to change, and the Rolling Stones were about to start moving at a speed that even they could barely keep up with, when, in April of 1963, their future manager would see them play and make it his mission to make the Rolling Stones a success. Andrew Lug Aldum was young and ambitious. He was only 19 years old, and he had already worked briefly as the Beatles' publicist under Brian Epstein. He had dreams of becoming a household name in the music industry, and he wanted to manage a band of his own. He kept hearing about this cool rhythm and blues band and melody maker called The Rolling Stones, and he decided that he had to see the band for himself. He went to see them play at the Crawdaddy Club. Before entering the club, Oldham wanted to look around the crowd just to check out and size up the scene. He walked around outside the club when he stumbled across a boy and a girl arguing. Something about the boy was captivating, and Oldham couldn't look away. Oldham remembers, quote, The boy gave me this look that asked me everything about myself in one moment. He was thin, wasteless, giving him the human form of a puma with a gender of its own, unquote. The boy was Mick Jagger. Just a few minutes later, when Oldham was in the club, he was shocked to see the mysterious boy on stage singing, captivating the audience just like he'd captivated Oldham a few minutes before. The sound was fantastic, too, and after just one set, Oldham was sold. Oldham remembers seeing the Stones play for the first time, saying, quote, The Rolling Stones made an immediate impact on me, and my reaction was, This is it. I felt they were magic. I saw they had a unique style. The combination of music and sex was something I had never encountered with any other group, unquote. Oldham couldn't get himself to approach the band that night, so he decided to return a few days later with his business partner the show business veteran Eric Easton. If Andrew was young, flamboyant, and idealistic, Eric Easton was very professional. He was older and practical. After the show, Andrew Lug Oldham worked up the courage to approach Charlie Watts and asked him who was the leader of the Rolling Stones. Charlie pointed to Brian Jones, who was getting drinks and chatting up girls at the bar. Oldham approached Brian, and shortly Mick and Keith joined. The band really liked Andrew. He was exactly their age. He was thin, kind of scruffy like them. He was also extremely engaging and energetic and talked in bursts of energy. Uh, and above all, he told them how great they were and how he, along with his business partner, Eric Easton, who looked thoroughly out of place at the Crawdaddy Club, were going to be the ones to make the Rolling Stones into stars, just like the Beatles. Just a few days later, Andrew Logue Oldham called Brian to set up a meeting. Bill, Charlie, Stu all worked and Mick had class, leaving Brian Jones the only stone in the room to talk to Oldham and Easton. This suited Brian well. Andrew later said, quote, Brian put himself forward as the leader of the group, and the rest seemed to accept this, unquote. Brian, Andrew, and Eric talked about the details of the deal for hours, and later that afternoon, Brian signed a three-year management contract on behalf of the Rolling Stones, a contract that had some seriously high costs. Oldham insisted that the Rolling Stones piano player, Ian Stewart, be removed from the lineup. Oldham liked the look of the Five Stones, skinny, artsy rebels. To Oldham, Stu's image didn't fit in with the band at all. He was older, heavier, he had this big square chin. Now, Brian consulted Mick and Keith about the decision, but he had already made up his mind. Brian wanted to be a star, and if that meant cutting a founding member, a friend, a person who gave everything to the Stones when they needed it most, that was the price he was willing to pay. The band made a compromise with Oldham. 
Stu would not be listed as an official member of the Rolling Stones, and he wouldn't participate with them on stage, but he could still drive them around and play on the recordings. But Ian Stewart would not be a Rolling Stone. Brian broke the news to Stu shortly after the agreement was made, and while he agreed to stay on as a second-class member, Stu felt devastated. Stu was a co-founder with Brian Jones. He was a fantastic piano player, and even though he was married and working full-time, he would spend what little extra money he had on equipment, a van for the band, and food for Mick, Brian, and Keith. Firing him was ruthless. These days, a lot of the Stones pretend that Ian Stewart didn't really care. Keith said, quote, To us, he was never really fired, and he understood it totally, unquote. But Keith, probably unconsciously, tends to distort history a bit, and the reality is much sadder. Stu's wife later remembered, quote, Whatever Stu or anybody else said, he did care about being relegated. He had enough to worry about because he was so painfully shy, but the bottom line for Andrew was that Stu's face didn't fit. Andrew loved the pretty, thin, long-haired boys. Stu felt bitter, not because he wasn't up there on stage, but about the savage way that he was kicked to one side. Unquote. Brian tried to sugarcoat it for Stu, telling him that he was always going to be a member of the Rolling Stones and he'd get a sixth of everything, but Stu no longer trusted a thing Brian Jones said. He even said, quote, I felt that Brian was now incapable of leadership. As soon as the group started to become in any way successful, Brian smelled money. He wanted to be a star. He was prepared to do anything that would make it happen and bring in the money immediately. Mick and Keith weren't into that, unquote. Now, Stu would stay with the Rolling Stones organization for decades, and they would consider him a friend, and he'd even continue to perform with them in the later years, but it was a big move. On the road to success, the Stones decided to kick out one of their founding members and best friends, and it wouldn't be the last time that they made that decision. Relegating Stu wasn't the only change that Oldham made. It was him who added the G to the end of their name, and for some reason, he made Keith dropped the S at the end of his last name, making him professionally Keith Richard. He was eager to fine-tune the band's image, so he brought them shopping and bought them uniforms and beetle boots. He also told them not to be seen with their girlfriends, especially Brian, who couldn't be seen with his kid and Pat Andrews, because he had to look available for female fans. Brian listened and pretty much stopped seeing Pat Andrews and his kid altogether after this. Brian once again paying any price for fame. Oldham's effort to beatalize the Stones would prove futile. They wore what they wanted on stage, and within days they lost their boots and stained their suits. Instead of trying harder to organize them, Oldham did something pretty revolutionary. He just let them be themselves. He realized that the Beatles were already the clean-cut, suit-wearing, adorable, take-home-to-mom pop group. In the Stones, he let them be dirty and rebellious. Of course, this is kind of one of the great ironies of rock and roll, because... The Beatles were actually working class, uneducated. They were truly rebellious. I mean, they would hang out in brothels in Hamburg. They'd constantly pop pills. They'd wear leather jackets, get into trouble with the law. Before Brian Epstein famously Beatleized them. The Rolling Stones were mostly middle class, somewhat educated, and worked jobs. I mean, Mick Jagger was a student at the London School of Economics. But they were still teen rebels, sort of miscreants. So Oldham leaned into that and decided to make them anti-Beatles, gave them a pass to be as bad as they possibly could. Their image would become more and more important in the coming years, but what really mattered to the band was the music, and Andrew Lug Oldham delivered, 
Within just a few weeks of their deal, Oldham got them a recording contract, and he had booked them some studio time at DECA. DECA's executive, Dick Rowe, declined to sign the Beatles in 1962, and he was now famous as the man who passed on the Beatles. He didn't want to make that mistake twice. And Dick Rowe was actually judging a singing competition with George Harrison in Liverpool when George told him to sign the Stones. So Rowe was already open to them when Andrew Logue Oldham and Eric Easton approached him. The Stones weren't songwriters. They were R&B players. So their first single had to be a cover. They wanted something that they liked, but that had a commercial edge. So they decided to record a cover of Chuck Berry's Come On. The song features Mick on vocals, Brian on harmonica and backup vocals, Keith on guitar, Bill on bass, and Charlie on drums. It was produced by Andrew Luke Oldham, who simply was not a producer, but that's how it was back then. It was released in June of 1963 with a cover of Muddy Waters' I Wanna Be Loved as the B-side. You'd think the Rolling Stones would be happy that they were officially recording artists, but they were miserable with the song Come On. They hated it, and they refused to play it at live performances. They thought it was weak, not representative of their style, and cheesy. Mick Jagger said of the single, quote, I don't think Come On was very good. In fact, it was shit. We disliked it so much we didn't do it at any of our gigs, unquote. Bill Wyman also said, quote, Our first row with our managers developed because we hated the first single and we refused to play it on live shows. We thought we'd compromise enough with Andrew to cut his bloody record. Naive as we were, we thought it was his and Decca's job to go out and sell it. We must have been the only artists in the world to refuse to play their all-important debut single, unquote. Despite this, the single climbed for months before reaching number 21 in the UK and put the Stones on the map enough to land them a gig on Thank Your Lucky Stars and allowed them to book a small tour backing the Everly Brothers across the UK. Also, enough for Mick, Bill, and Charlie to finally quit their day jobs and embrace the life of professional musicians. Mick was so keen on playing it safe, he waited till the absolute last minute to tell the London School Economics that he was going to stop his education. And when he did, he only gave them a notice of a temporary leave of absence just to keep the door open. The Stones rather modestly started to turn heads. Their TV appearances got people talking about how unkempt they were. And toward the end of their tour, girls would start rushing the stage. The tour also provided a crucial lesson. Outside of R&B clubs, you had to play faster. The Stones simply had to put upbeat, more commercial songs into the repertoire, or else the audience would lose interest. On this first tour, a new side of Brian also started to emerge. Due to a mixture of asthma and exhaustion, Brian missed a solid handful of gigs, something which perplexed the rest of the band who were young and healthy and even if they weren't, wouldn't dare miss a show. Bill Wyman said in these days, quote, We played without Brian for the first, but certainly not the last time, unquote. The tour ended that fall, and the Stones capped it off with a performance at the Royal Albert Hall. They weren't headlining, in fact, they were on the bill with like 10 other bands, and the Beatles closed the show. That said, the Stones' stock was rising, and the Beatles anxiously watched as the Rolling Stones played as they received a level of enthusiasm from the crowd normally only reserved for the Fab Four. Now, the Beatles weren't too threatened by the Rolling Stones. To them, the Stones were still very green, and their song, Come On, wasn't exactly going to be knocking She Loves You out of the charts anytime soon, so the Beatles really didn't have much to worry about. And it was actually the Beatles who would give the Stones their first top 20 hit that fall. The Rolling Stones put off recording a follow-up single for months. 
They wanted their next single to be something really special, something they could be proud of. One day, Andrew Oldham bumped into John and Paul when the Stones were actually in the studio rehearsing some tunes to see what could be their next single. Andrew explained the Stones situation, and John and Paul happily decided to join Andrew with a song that they thought could work for the Rolling Stones. They had bits and pieces of the song, I Wanna Be Your Man, and they finished it up in the studio with the Stones watching in awe. Mick Jagger said, quote, The way Paul and John used to hustle tunes was great. We thought it sounded pretty commercial, but we were surprised that John and Paul would be prepared to give us one of their best numbers, unquote. They recorded the Lennon-McCartney-penned I Wanna Be Your Man with Brian Jones playing a bluesy slide guitar solo, which really was the defining feature of the Stones version, and they released the song with great success. As it climbed to number 12 on the UK charts, their biggest hit yet and their first top 20. More than the hit, though, the Stones realized that if they wanted to make it in music, they couldn't keep relying on covers. They had to do what John and Paul did. They had to learn how to write songs. Songwriting would become the cause of the single most important shift in the band's direction, as well as the dynamic within the band itself. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about the early Stones albums, their first compositions, and one of their biggest hits ever. So don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, until next week, listen to the Rolling Stones. Rock Band.